Good morning. My name is Dr. Martin Luther, although I was actually born Martin Luther. Luther is a loser name in German. I'd love to tell you what it means, but your straight-laced pastor told me, because I have a reputation of being a little loose with my lips, that if I said anything inappropriate, he would yank me from the stage. Boring! Personally, I would have rather interacted with Pastor Jared Stichter. That boy is fun. He'd probably tell you what looter means, but I don't want to get pulled this early in the message, so I'll just tell you what Luther means. Luther means something to the essential thing of the army of God or sending an army. And I didn't intend to do it, but that's exactly what I did. I sent an army against the universal church. Let me back up and tell you a little bit about myself. I was born November 10, 1483. I was born outside of what you would say Berlin today, actually 120 miles southwest of Berlin. Very soon after my birth, my family moved to Mansfield, which is just outside of Erfurt. My father was a hardworking guy. He worked the copper mines, and somehow my father managed to put a roof over the head and feed all 11 of us, although only four of my siblings lived to adulthood. Not only did he manage to feed us and house us, but eventually my father managed to purchase several copper mines and even a smelting factory. My parents were incredibly industrious. But not only were they industrious, they were abusive. Even compared to abysmal 15th century parenting standards, my parents were quite a bit below the average. My dad regularly beat me, and both my mom and dad dressed me down verbally time and time again. Is it any wonder that when I would call him father, it would have some impact in what I thought of the heavenly father? Now you may think that because of my name, I loved God. Oh, I would get there. But the truth is I hated God. I thought of God as a despot, a tyrant. Someone looking to take out a pound of flesh, my pound of flesh. And I think it goes back to my earthly father. Fathers, we need to be careful. Is it any wonder that Paul writes in Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the admonition and instruction of the Lord. Our children are watching. Our, our children are learning from us. But not only was my father abusive and hardworking, but frankly, he was theologically confused. My father engaged in the indulgence controversy 
of my day. Now that may or may not be a word you know. Indulgences are pieces of paper that you would purchase in my day to receive forgiveness of sin and thereby shorten one's time in a non-biblical place created by man called purgatory. Can you imagine somehow thinking that we could earn our forgiveness? What were we thinking? Again, fathers, again, mothers, you need to be careful. It was God through Moses who said this in Deuteronomy 6, 6 to 9. He said, in these words that I command to you, you shall diligently put in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. When you sit down and when you get up, teach your children. When you lie down and when you walk, you shall put these words on the doorpost above your house and on your post. You shall put them on your hands, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You see, little kids are watching. Little children are listening. And what we say and how we say it really matters. We're teaching our kids about the Father. We're teaching our kids about the Father's words. And while my father was abusive and hardworking and theologically aberrant, my father was also exceptionally bright. Most fathers in my day would have seen a son like me as an asset to go down in the mine to give a pickaxe in my hand, send me down under to chisel copper, perhaps to earn my living. But not my dad. My dad had heard the rumors about my intellect. He had experienced some of it at home. And so my dad invested in me and quite heavily. He sent me to school for a classical education. And having finished that quite early... He enrolled me at the University of Affert, and by age 22, I had both a bachelor's and a master's degree, and I had begun a doctor of jurisprudence. You see, my dad thought, you know, with the burgeoning economy and business that he was now running, he would probably need a family lawyer for the family, hear the word his, business, and so they thought it was a good idea if he sent me to law school. And quite frankly, I was good at it. And I kind of liked the idea. You know, I would have all this education. I would have a future. I would have a job when I came out of school. There was a position and a way for me to provide for myself in life. But, but I wasn't sure. What about God, this, this tyrant, this mean-spirited God? Did I, did, I, did I not need to somehow please him? I had not yet learned, Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I didn't know anything about that. 
I didn't know about sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, and solus Christus in Christ alone. And so my dad wanted me to become a lawyer, a good, respectable job. But what about God? That tyrant, that one I feared. Maybe he would want me to go into vocational ministry. I just wasn't sure. And so with this going on in my mind, I headed back to the University of Erfurt. I had been home on holiday with my family. And now I was going back to continue my studies. I was crossing a field. It was an open field. And suddenly the sky grew dark. The clouds were black. There were claps of thunder and bolts of lightning, and I was terrified, and I know not why. I found a tree, and I ran under it, and a bolt of lightning hit just right next to me. It didn't hit me. It didn't hit the tree, but it literally threw me, and immediately I cried out, save me, Saint Anna, I'll become a monk. Saint Anne is the grandmother of Jesus, and she's the patroness saint of minors. Go figure. Saint Anne, I'll become a monk. Now, I didn't know the niceties of theology at this point. In my day, we often thought of saints as, as dead people. Saints were those dead people that seemed to be pretty good, and sometimes when you got in trouble, you would pray to the saints and, and hope that the saints would have pity on you and that they would respond. I didn't understand that that's not in the Bible. Saints aren't necessarily dead people. They can be alive people. The Bible says that saints are anyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. I know, it blows my mind too. That means you're probably sitting next to a saint. Who would have thunk it? Not me. But the Bible says, if you know Jesus, you're a saint. But I didn't understand these niceties yet. And so I had made a vow to St. Anne. And two weeks later, I enrolled in the monastery at Erfurt, the black cloister of observant Augustinians. Now understand what this means. It means that all of my possessions are put in trust with the Augustinians. They were to hold my possessions for one month. If I was washed out in one month, I'd get my stuff back. Not that it amounted to much. But I didn't wash out. And after one month, I became a novitiant. A novitiant is somebody who for the next 11 months follows the advice, the instructions of the friars and the monks. They guide, they direct, they correct. I did their bidding. My father, he didn't talk to me for two years. He had invested in me and spent a lot of money in my education. He wanted me to be a lawyer and I became a monk, and he wouldn't speak to me for two years. It was two years later, 
It was the day that I was going to give my vows as a priest. It was the day that I was going to observe the Mass for the first time. You know the Mass. It's the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, communion. You use lots of words. And there was my father. He came. And so I had my earthly father who, who I hated. And I had my heavenly father who I also hated. And understand in my tradition, the bread and the cup, they change. Transubstantiation, trans change, substantiation, substance. And so I took the elements, and the technical language is, I would lift it up and I adored it, and then ex opere operata by the work performed, the bread turned into the body of Christ, and the blood was from the juice. And I'm holding the body and the blood of Christ, and my hands are shaking. And my Father is looking at me, and my Heavenly Father, I assume, is looking at me, and, and I did the unthinkable. I dropped the bread. In my tradition, I dropped Jesus. And my dad didn't speak to me for two more years. Fathers, we need to be careful. You remember what Paul writes in Colossians 3, 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. I was discouraged. And I had an aberrant view of God the Father because of the abuse of my earthly father. And that led to all sorts of, well, not very wise decisions. I fasted to the point where I could barely move. I took a whip and I would beat myself, flagellate myself over and over again. I would lie on the stone-cold pavement of my little room, without a blanket, without clothing, in the middle of winter in Germany, to somehow find favor in this God who is a tyrant, who is angry, who is malicious. And then, and then I would confess, oh my, would I confess, hour after hour after hour after hour, my spiritual advisor, Johann von Stupitz, he came to me one day and he said, Martin, 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 oh no, no, Martin, nobody wants to listen to you. Nobody wants to listen to you on the other side of the confessional, Martin. Martin, go and commit a real sin, Martin. Go and sin and then come back. When's the last time your pastor said that to you? <laughs> now that would grow a church, wouldn't it? But before we get all high and mighty on Johann von Stupitz, understand that he is the man that taught me grace. He understood sin. He knew Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. He knew 1 John 1.8 says that if we claim that we have no sin, we are liars, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. 
He knew, Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He knew all of that. But he also saw me chasing forgiveness through myself, through my own actions, through what I could do. I knew nothing about grace. And so he wanted me to pursue this idea of grace. But it wasn't only my father who who was playing with my mind. It was also scripture. I didn't understand it. I think of Romans 1.17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. For as it is written, the just shall live by faith. I read it over and over again. There's no mystery that the just live by faith. Of course they do. But how does one become just? How is one justified? That was the mystery. Now you have to understand what happened in my day. In fact, it happened long before my day. You go back to 380 to 404 A.D., Jerome. Jerome translated the Old Testament Hebrew into Latin, the New Testament Greek into Latin, the Latin Vulgate. It was a very good translation. Jerome is a serious scholar. But a translation made by one man is going to have errors. And he had a very big one. When he came to this word justification, he thought that sounds like the the Latin justificare. And so that's what he wrote down. Justice, that means righteousness. Ficare means to make, to make oneself righteous. And that's what he wrote in the Vulgate. And understand for the next almost thousand years, people no longer went back to the Hebrew text. They didn't go back to the Greek text. It isn't until Erasmus, in the beginning of the 1500s, in the 16th century, who gives us a new understanding, a new copy of a Greek text for us to read, and all of a sudden we begin to go back to the original language, and we see that the word is dikaiosune. A first-year Greek student knows that dikaiosune doesn't mean to make righteous. It means to be declared righteous. And you say, well, what's the big deal? Everything, everything, if I have to make myself righteous, I'm constantly trying to earn favor. If I have to make myself righteous, I'm beating myself with a whip. I'm fasting until I can't move. I'm lying on the stone-cold pavement without clothes in the middle of a German winter, to somehow appease this God who sounds like a tyrant because I can't make myself righteous. And yet he demands it without any help. It doesn't seem fair. But if the word is declared righteous, that's a game changer. 
that means that the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to me. The righteousness of Christ is credited to my account. His death, his burial, his resurrection pays the penalty of my sin. I can love this God. I can, I can embrace this God. This God has done it all for me. This God has paid the penalty for me. That's why Paul wrote in Romans 4, 5, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies what? The ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Who does God justify? Who does he declare righteous? The ungodly. That's what the text says. It's not me trying to earn my salvation. It's not me trying to be good enough. He justifies the ungodly and that faith in him, Jesus, is credited to me as righteous. I'm not godly and neither are you. Have you read Romans 3 lately? It's rather depressing. Let me just give you a thumbnail sketch. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands. No one seeks God. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. Nobody. Nobody. But this God, this God-man does perfection, lives a perfect life, and then lays down his life for me. Suddenly, I understand it's solus Christus, it's Christ alone, sola fide, it's faith alone, sola gratia, in his grace alone by which I am saved. And I can love this God. No wonder Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my laws, you will obey we obey because we love him, because he first loved us. No wonder John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. This God loves me. He paid the penalty for me. And so I no longer needed to to lay on the stone-cold pavement and beat my body and fast until I could not mock. I no longer needed to confess hours on end to somehow cover my sin because Jesus paid it all. He who knew no sin became sin for us that through him we might become the righteousness of God. He paid it all. It was this truth that made the indulgence controversy just so unacceptable to me. Again, let me explain the indulgences. There's a treasury of merits. There's the supposed good works left behind by Jesus and the apostles and those who had died before us. They're entrusted to the church. This isn't a new doctrine. In fact, it began in the 11th century. It actually began in 1052 at the Council of Claremont, Pope Urban II. 
You see, he had a problem. He wanted to retake the Holy Land from the Muslim Turks. He wanted Europeans to go to the Holy Land to retake it for the church. But in the 11th century, Europe was dismal and dark. The Middle East, actually not so much, but the Middle East had an oppressive army, a dangerous army. And so how do you get people who already live in substandard conditions to go to another land to retake the Holy Land from an army that is superior to your own? How do you do that? You begin to talk about one's soul. And that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is only sufficient to get you to a place called purgatory where you will suffer in the flame for thousands or longer years. But if you will go to the Holy Land and pilgrimage, that was the original word, later it became crusade, and if you were a peasant or a knight and a king, you would go there. You would cut your time in purgatory in half, three quarters. Maybe you wouldn't have to go there at all. But in my day, five centuries after indulgences were created, for the first time the Pope began to sell them. The Pope was Pope Leo X. And he was expanding St. Peter's Basilica. He ran out of money. And he began to send messengers throughout Europe. And the messengers would go to various provinces. And they would say, do you not hear? Your loved one is suffering in purgatory. You could do something about it. And do you not fear for your soul? If you give enough, you can bypass purgatory and go to heaven. And large amounts of money were being collected all over Europe. But at this point, I was not just a friar and a monk and a priest. As a doctor of sacred theology, I was a professor at the University of Wittenberg, one of the flagships of the Universal Church. And I would not allow this to happen in Wittenberg. And in response, I wrote 97 responses, and nobody paid any attention. So a few months later, I whittled it down to 95. I sharpened it. I, I wrote it in Latin. I nailed it to the Wittenberg church door. Latin is the, is the language of scholars. I never wanted to split the church. That was never my intent. I'm a scholar speaking to scholars Nailing it to the Wittenberg church door, essentially calling for scholars to gather together to talk about what I see are concerns in the universal church, of which I'm a deep insider. But you know what happened? Within two weeks, the Latin was translated to German, and it went throughout all of the Germanic tribes, and then it was translated into other languages, and it went throughout Europe. And a protest emerged, a protest against the church. And that's what the word Protestant means. It means protest. 
I don't really care if you remember what I've said thus far. But I care that you remember the five solas. Because this is what matters from the Reformation. Sola is Latin for alone. The five solas are watershed. They matter. The first is sola scriptura. Scripture alone. Where does the authority come from? Does it come from a man? Does it come from a priest? Does it come from a church? Does it come from dogma? Or does it come from God? Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. 66 books, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament. It is the Word of God. Psalm 119, 96 says, To all perfection I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. Peter said in 2 Peter 1.21, he made this statement. He said, prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by God's Spirit. It's a watershed issue. Where's authority? The Reformers said, sola scriptura. Scripture says, Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. The second is Sola Gratia, grace alone. Salvation is not based on what we do, but it's based on what God has done for us. Paul put it this way in Titus 3, 4-7. For when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not by works done by us in righteousness, but by his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, and by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, and having been justified, declared righteous, by his grace, that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's grace. It's grace. It's not what we do. It's not what we deserve. It's what God extends to us. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Gratia, grace alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We place our faith in the grace extended to us that we read about in Scripture. Faith alone, sola fide. Grace alone, sola gratia. Scripture alone, sola scriptura, which speaks of Christ alone, solas Christus. So Paul says in Romans 6.23, that the wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God. It's eternal life. How? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And having received Christ, then we live our lives solely Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. That's what you and I ought to live our lives to bring glory to God. 
Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Solas Christus, Soli Deo Gloria. The five solas. They're the rallying cry of the Reformation. And they ought to be the rallying cry of our lives. It's a watershed issue. Where does authority come from? How are we saved? And whom are we saved? And having been saved, how well we live? Or how must we then live? Well, thank you for allowing me to come. God bless.